Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. This episode is a preview of the 2020-2021 term of the Supreme Court of the United States, which begins on October 5th. Our special guest is Robert K. Cry, a founding partner of the law firm of Molo Lampkin. Mr. Cry represents clients before the United States Supreme Court, has authored more than 40 Supreme Court briefs, and served as a law clerk to Justice Anthony Scalia. Welcome, Mr. Cry. Thanks for speaking with us about the upcoming term of the U.S. Supreme Court. Mr. Cry, before we discuss the new term of the court, let's first take a step back and review the 2019-2020 term. In your opinion, what was the most consequential decision of the court from the perspective of investors during the last term? Jeff, I think hands down that would be the court's decision in Liu versus SEC. That case upheld the SEC's power to seek disgorgement in enforcement actions while identifying some important limitations. The case involved a husband and wife who ran an EB-5 program. Those programs allow foreign investors to apply for permanent residence based on investments that create jobs in the United States. The defendants raised $27 million from investors, supposedly for a cancer treatment center, but they spent most of that money on so-called marketing expenses and diverted the funds to their own personal accounts. The SEC brought a civil enforcement action. The Exchange Act authorizes the SEC to seek equitable relief, and the SEC has long claimed that an order requiring a defendant to disgorge wrongful profits qualifies as equitable relief under the statute. In lieu, the Supreme Court agreed, but the court also recognized important limits. First, a court can only disgorge a defendant's wrongful profits, not all proceeds received from investors. So if a defendant incurs legitimate business expenses, those ordinarily have to be deducted. Second, a defendant can be held responsible only for its own wrongful profits and not profits retained by others. Ordinarily, therefore, a court cannot impose disgorgement on a joint and several basis. And finally, disgorgement is supposed to compensate defrauded investors. A court must therefore return the disgorged funds to the victims, at least where it's possible to do so. Liu reaffirms a significant tool the SEC uses to recover compensation for defrauded investors. Between 2010 and 2018, the SEC obtained $13.8 billion in disgorgement and distributed 75% of it to fraud victims. Liu preserves that important authority. The limitations that Liu recognized may reduce the amount of disgorgement in some cases, but in one respect, those limitations actually benefit investors, namely the rule that disgorge funds ordinarily must be used to compensate investors. In recent years, rather than paying investors, the SEC has often deposited disgorge funds into a treasury account that it uses to pay whistleblowers and fund its inspector general. The court's decision restricts those practices and helps ensure that disgorgement is actually used to compensate fraud victims. Mr. Cry, now looking ahead to the court's new term, what case do you expect to have the biggest impact on investors and why? I think one major case is Goldman Sachs versus Arkansas Teacher Retirement System. The cert petition in that case was filed in August and the court is going to decide later this fall whether to grant review. 
case arises out of the role that Goldman Sachs played in subprime mortgage securitizations, most notoriously with the collateralized debt obligation known as Abacus. Publicly, Goldman Sachs marketed the deal as an opportunity for investors to buy shares in bundles of mortgages. Behind the scenes, however, it allegedly allowed a hedge fund manager, John Paulson, to handpick the mortgages that went into the CDO. Paulson intentionally selected risky mortgages and then bet against the CDO by short selling it. When those dealings emerged and the SEC filed a complaint, Goldman's stock price fell. Goldman's shareholders then sued the company for securities fraud. They pointed to statements in Goldman's SEC filings, such as, we have extensive procedures and controls that are designed to identify and address conflicts of interest. The shareholders claimed that those statements were fraudulent because Goldman was secretly allowing hedge funds to select holdings for its securitizations and then bet they would fail. Goldman moved to dismiss, claiming that the statements in its SEC filings were too vague to be material. The district court agreed for some statements, but not others, and denied Goldman permission to appeal. The parties then litigated class certification. Typically, securities plaintiffs claim to have relied on misrepresentations indirectly by relying on the integrity of the stock price, a theory the Supreme Court blessed in a case called Basic versus Levinson. That fraud on the market theory allows claims to proceed as class actions. Without it, individual reliance issues would predominate over common issues and prevent class treatment. In a recent case called Halliburton, the Supreme Court held that a defendant can oppose class certification by showing that the allegedly fraudulent statements had no impact on the stock price. If the misrepresentations did not affect the stock price, the court reasoned, the fraud on the market theory cannot apply. Typically, defendants dispute price impact by showing that the stock price did not change in response to the defendant's misrepresentation. In the Goldman Sachs case, however, the plaintiffs are pursuing what's known as a price maintenance theory. Their argument is not that Goldman's stock price shot up when Goldman told the public that its extensive procedures and controls existed for conflicts of interest. Rather, their argument is that when Goldman gave those false assurances, it prevented its stock price from going down. If Goldman had truthfully disclosed that it was allowing hedge funds to structure and then bet against its CDOs, its stock price would have plummeted, a price impact of a different kind. The key issue in Goldman Sachs is what a defendant must do to refute price impact in that sort of price maintenance case. A defendant cannot simply point out that the stock price didn't move when the defendant made the misrepresentation. By definition, that doesn't happen in a price maintenance case. So instead, Goldman focused on qualitative aspects of the statements, urging that they were too vague and aspirational to have had any effect. The Second Circuit rejected that argument. It held that Goldman was really arguing over whether the statements were material, and in the court's view, materiality was a merits issue rather than a class certification issue. That is the ruling that Goldman is now asking the Supreme Court to review. The price maintenance theory plays an increasingly important role in private securities litigation. The underlying logic of the theory is hard to deny. If a food distributor tells investors, our products do not contain rat poison, the statement is unlikely to drive up the stock price because investors probably assume that that's true anyway. But if the company secretly knows its products do contain rat poison and the stock price later plummets when the truth emerges, 
how can that not be securities fraud? What a defendant can do to oppose class certification in a price maintenance case, and more specifically, how Halliburton applies in those types of cases, are issues that are both theoretically interesting and practically significant. So we'll be following this case closely when the Supreme Court considers the petition in a few months' time. Mr. Cry, a recent Bloomberg article indicated that the passing of Justice Ginsburg may boost the chances of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac shareholders winning a Supreme Court ruling in their challenge to the transfer of $125 billion in Fannie and Freddie profits to the U.S. Treasury. Can you give us some background on this case and its implications, if any, for shareholder rights more broadly? Sure. The case you're referring to is Collins versus Mnuchin, which the court will hear this December. The case is a challenge to the Treasury Department's net worth suite of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which dates back a decade to the housing crisis. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, of course, are publicly chartered but partially investor-owned corporations that guarantee mortgages and thereby improve access to housing. During the housing crisis, Fannie and Freddie suffered devastating losses on their mortgage portfolios, and the Treasury Department had to step in and bail them out with new capital. Congress also enacted the Housing and Economic Recovery Act, which authorized the Federal Housing Finance Agency to act as conservator for the companies. Despite its new funding, Fannie and Freddie continued to struggle and could not pay even the six quarterly dividends they owed to the government. The FHFA, as conservator, then resorted to drastic measures and made a deal with the Treasury Department, known as the Net Worth Suite. Instead of making fixed dividend payments each quarter, Fannie and Freddie would pay to the government all their earnings for the quarter, minus a small buffer, whether that amount was greater or less than the fixed dividends they otherwise would have owed. Now, the parties have very different perspectives on that arrangement. Fannie and Freddie shareholders complained that the net worth sweep ended up being a terrible deal. Soon after, both companies returned to profitability and ended up paying far more under the net worth sweep than they would have paid in fixed dividends. The shareholders accused the government of effectively nationalizing the two companies, expropriating all their earnings and preventing them from ever paying any dividends to their private shareholders. The government, on the other hand, points out that nothing was certain when the FHFA agreed to the net worth sweep and that shareholders are relying on hindsight to second-guess the conservators' decisions. The shareholders challenged the net worth sweep as a violation of the FHFA's duties as conservator. They also brought a separation of powers challenge to the agency's structure, claiming that Congress improperly limited the president's oversight by insulating its director from removal. The government argues that the lawsuit is barred by the statute's anti-injunction clause, which prohibits courts from restraining or affecting the agency's powers as conservator. The government also argues that the suit is barred by the statute's succession clause, which prohibits shareholders from bringing derivative claims by vesting those claims in the FHFA instead. Finally, the government argues that even if the FHFA's director is unconstitutionally insulated from removal, striking down the net worth sweep is not a proper remedy. The case has important implications for shareholder rights. The case obviously matters to shareholders of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and other government-sponsored enterprises. As plaintiffs see it, the FHFA and Treasury conspired to nationalize the two companies 
eliminating their ability ever to earn profits for shareholders and handing over all their future earnings to the government. Whether or not the statute authorized the FHFA to do that, there's no question that that was a dramatic exercise of government authority. It both underscores the risks of investing in companies that are so tightly bound up with the government and also raises questions about whether Congress went too far in granting the FHFA extraordinary powers. The specific legal issues in the case are also very important. The anti-injunction clause is similar to provisions that apply to many financial industries where government agencies act as receivers or conservators for failing institutions. The savings and loan industry is one example. Whether those provisions insulate conservators from judicial review, even when they seriously impair shareholder rights, is an important issue for financial institution investors. Finally, the dispute over the succession clause has perhaps the broadest impact on shareholder rights. That dispute turns in part on whether the claims are direct claims that belong to shareholders or derivative claims that belong to the company. The government argues that the claims are derivative because shareholders are essentially complaining that the company made a bad deal with the Treasury Department. The shareholders respond that the claims are direct because the FHFA caused the company to cut a sweetheart deal with its preferred shareholder while removing its private shareholders from the capital structure. The court's decision could set an important precedent for disputes where minority shareholders accuse a dominant shareholder of expropriating corporate wealth, an issue that occurs in a wide variety of contexts. Finally, as for whether Judge Barrett's nomination will have any impact, it really is too soon to say. By all accounts, Judge Barrett is an extremely sharp and conscientious judge. In fact, I had the pleasure of appearing in front of her in the Seventh Circuit last year. This case involves some thorny statutory construction issues that would have gotten a very close look from Justice Ginsburg and would surely get a very close look from Justice Barrett too. Beyond that, we'll just have to wait and see. That concludes this podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I wanna thank our special guest, Robert K. Cry of the law firm of Molo Lampkin. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.